0: Samuel 8 is our Old Testament reading tonight, 1st Samuel 8. We'll look at this account of Israel's history, they're demanding a king, and then just a few verses from Matthew chapter 1, and then we'll read together the responses of uh, Lord's Day 11, page 18, the back of your blue hymnal as we consider together those questions and answers for tonight's sermon first Samuel 8 God's holy and inspired word let's give our attention to its reading when Samuel grew old he appointed his sons as judges for Israel the name of his firstborn was Joel And the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have... And the Lord told him, sorry. Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me, and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king who will reign over them will do. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, This is what the king who will reign over you will do. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots." Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your men servants and maidservants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, and the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations, with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated, bef- he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the men of Israel, everyone go back to his town. And then Matthew chapter one Just flip over to the first chapter of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1. Verses eighteen through twenty-one. Matthew one, verses eighteen through twenty-one. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. And if you would take uh, Catechism, Questions and Answers, back of the blue hymnal, Lord's Day 11, page 18. Let's read the answers together with one voice. Why is the Son of God called Jesus, meaning Savior? Because He saves us from our sins. Salvation cannot be found in anyone else. It is futile to look for salvation elsewhere. Do those who look for their salvation and security in saints, in themselves, or elsewhere, really believe in the only Savior, Jesus? No. Although they boast of being His, by their deeds they deny the only Savior and Deliverer, Jesus. Either Jesus is not a perfect Savior, or those who in true faith accept this Savior have in Him all they need for their salvation. I was thinking about the challenge of the doctrine of providence we talked about last week, Lord's Day 10, and and how... The Christian life is so much about trusting in the God who is in control and understanding that all of the things in your life they, they may taste bitter, but the fruit of them is sweet. And we talked about that at, at great length yesterday, and or last week, excuse me. And and of course, there is there's a challenge there. And there is another challenge to our faith in this doctrine that. Jesus provides all that we need for salvation, number one. And number two, the salvation that he provides is beyond anything we could possibly imagine, but it's something that we cannot see. And how easily our hearts, the hearts of our flesh, are pulled in the direction of wanting to trust in the things that we see. The beginning of Pilgrim's Progress Places this problem before us, Christian, or the one who will become known as Christian in the book, uh, becomes convinced that the the celestial city, though it lies beyond his seeing, is indeed in the distance, and and he needs to make a journey to go there, and so he runs back to tell his family, and his family, they don't go with him on it. They, they, They say, whatever you're talking about, we can't see it, we and uh, he's grasping it by faith. And so he's about to set out on this journey because uh, he is grasping something according to his faith. He is seeing it with the eyes of faith. He can't see it, but he believes that it is there and he believes that it's worth leaving everything else behind. It's worth giving his life uh, to seek this celestial city. He goes on this journey. Of course, it's a wonderful, wonderful book. And we're, we all are tempted, just as his family, just as Christian's family, to look around us and say, this is the reality. This is, these are the things that are real, the things you can touch and see and hear, and to place our faith in those things. But because we are tempted to put our faith in the things that we see, we must remember that God has saved us from something we cannot see. And he has saved us to something we cannot see. First Samuel chapter 8 illustrates this problem of lingering sin, indwelling sin, perfectly in the heart of man. And, and it places exactly what goes on in our own hearts, even as we seek to serve the Lord in our lives. Even as we seek to serve the Lord in faith looking to Christ as a perfect Savior, looking to Him as the one who gives us all that we need. So 1 Samuel 8, let's consider this for a few minutes together. The first thing that we see is Israel's demand. 1 Samuel, a time of great uncertainty for Israel. Up until the death of Samuel, you've got Israel being ruled by judges, but it's obviously a transitional book from judges uh, to the monarchy, to the kingship. You might summarize 1 Samuel in the simple phrase, looking for security. They want to be secure. They, they want judges who are going to do well, or they want a king who's going to rule over them. Uh, they want strong human leadership. Eli and Samuel both were good judges. Both of their sons are, uh, both sons, of both, the sons of both men are awful. So the people end up demanding a king. Now most people read that and they see the reaction of Samuel. Samuel's displeased. They've asked for a king. Uh, And most people say that on its face, Israel should never have asked for a king. But it's interesting. Deuteronomy 17 tells us that uh, God makes provisions for a king in Israel. There was going to be a time, no matter what the nature of Israel's request was, that there would be a king ruling over them. And so we read in Deuteronomy 17, says, When you come to the land the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself. Or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses? Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Isn't that interesting? God lays down these provisions. He says, when you get to the promised land. And someday when you're going to set a king over you, that is fine, but here's how he needs to rule. And what are, well, how would you summarize all of those criteria? It's basically exactly different than the way a normal king would have ruled in the world in that time. He's not to pile up wealth for himself. He's not to gather to himself as many possess- possessions as he can. He's not to seek to increase His glory. In other places in scripture we see that actually the king of Israel was to, uh, in a perfect world, copy down himself a book of the law uh, and to carry it with him. He was to have God's law in his mind and in his heart, part of him. To be like the man of Psalm 16, meditating on God and his goodness even while he lies upon his bed. The king of Israel was to be God's vice-king, essentially. God wasn't going to to relinquish the throne on which he sat over his people. He was the ruler. So there was someone that was always going to be higher than the king. But this request, of course, in 1 Samuel 8, is not in accordance with what we read in Deuteronomy 17. They say, give us a king to to rule over us like the nations. What were the other nations' kings doing? Gathering wealth to themselves. Making their own laws. Interesting, you see that phrase. Give us a king to judge us. See, they want someone who's going to come in and write his own law. Someone who's going to come in and say what he believes they should do. This is why they have rejected God as their ruler, and that's why the Lord says that to Samuel when Samuel cries out to him. They want to be like the other nations around them, they want to appear mighty. They want to get out of the whole deal of Yahweh being their king. So their request is wrong because they have a lack of faith. They have a lack of faith in God's ability to rule them well. They have a lack of faith in God's promise to preserve them. And saying, I have given you this land. I'm going to maintain your position in this land. They have forgotten. You might summarize it if we were to bring it home for our own spiritual lives. They've forgotten to love God's grace. They've forgotten to pause and to remind themselves of the wonderful thing that God has done for them. Has any God ever done this? When he redeemed Israel, you can find various passages, especially in Deuteronomy. Has any God ever gone into another land and plucked for himself a people out and led them out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Nothing like that had ever happened in the history of the world. And of course, Israel has forgotten their place. So they make this demand nonetheless. They've forgotten the manna that God has rained down from heaven. They've forgotten the water that God has put forth from the rock. So God warns them. See, Israel's demand and then God's warning. God wants them to know just exactly what they are asking for. It's actually uh, quite a unique, it's obviously unique, but it's, it's a wonderful and blessed thing to have God as your king. Because God does not bother himself with trying to acquire many horses and, and uh, much gold. That's not what he is concerned with. He doesn't need any of that stuff. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing, his word says. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its might, it cannot rescue. God is saying, vain is the salvation of man. That's exactly what Israel has decided to demand. Give us something that looks like earthly security, that looks like earthly salvation. And so Samuel says, you give a king, or you ask for a king, and we set a king over you according to your asking, he's going to do three things. He's going to take from your families, and your fields, and your flocks. He's going to take from your families, he's going to come and take your sons and your daughters. Your sons, he's going to put them to work, he's going to put them in their army. It's all going to be about serving him. Uh, He's going to take from your fields. He's going to take the best of your crops. He's going to take it for himself because he believes it's his position to enjoy the fruit of the land. He's going to take from the flocks, those things that you work so hard uh, to raise up. He's going to take them for himself. But they insist, the Israelites insist, they say, that's exactly what we want. We want to be normal like the other nations. We want to be normal and, and have a king over us who goes out and can sort of have it out with other kings and vie for authority sort of on the in the realm of power in this world the heart of the israelites is so interesting to think about it relative to our own hearts do we look around and see those who are not god's people and do we desire the lives that they have Do we think as we wake up in the morning, we remind ourselves of the call that we have to serve our God, to live in accordance with His will, to live lives of gratitude because the grace that He has bestowed upon us? And do we sometimes think it's all a little bit too much? Do we think about the trials or the suffering that we have to go through and adopt the perspective that God calls us to? It says, Be joyful, maintain joy in these things. And do we say, You know what? I don't think I want to do that anymore. I want to live the life of those who make up their own reality, their own objective truth, who write their own law. We live in a world of where that's all that's going on. People writing their own laws, their own idea of right and wrong. You say, you know what? hear the Ten Commandments every Sunday at church. I, I don't know that that's really where I want to find my standard of right and wrong. We know what's going to happen. You, you go out and you start living according to the way uh, the world, the flesh, the devil would tell you to live. What's going to happen? The, the, the goodness, the flourishing of your life is going to plummet. Your families and your fields and your flocks. And yet we see The sinfulness within our own hearts that oftentimes desires those things. To leave it behind. What a warning from God. And what a warning to us in this passage as we see exactly uh, what happens even in the history of Israel. Uh, Israel's warning, or Israel's demand, God's warning, then God's solution. God's solution. Of course, uh, the first king of Israel was Saul and he was a tailor-made king. He was, a head above, he was a head taller than everyone else. He was strong. He was handsome. If you were to go to the king's store and you, and you go down sort of the, the, the aisle everyone's gathering around, he's the one that you purchase. They said, this is the one who's going to lead us like all of the other nations. Saul, of course, was a, a failure as a king in Israel. And then comes a man after God's own heart, David. And uh, David is a wonderful king, but David himself fails and falls, and by the end of his life his whole household is kind of coming apart. Solomon comes after David. Solomon is very wise, a good king in many ways, but he fails as well. After Solomon, really the whole kingship becomes a disaster. And it, it it leads us into the voice of the prophets where there is this promise that there will be one who comes, who provides the security that was so desired back in First Samuel. That security, that, that contentment is promised in so many ways. But what's interesting is that when you get to the fulfillment, when you see it in Christ, all of a sudden... It's that exact same problem. You read the Gospels and the religious establishment in Israel is saying, Jesus, are you the Christ? Are you the one who was promised? You need to show your power. You need to show your strength. Show us that you're going to overtake Caesar. Many times in the Gospel of John, of course, even as we've read, they say they they were rushing to make Jesus king and he escaped their grasp. One of those voices of the prophets is in Daniel chapter 2. It says, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Now, if we are going to be like Israel in First Samuel 8, demanding the kind of king that they are demanding, and we read that passage with those eyes what we say is the messiah is going to be like an earthly king that has never been seen before his glory his majesty his strength his army all of those things are going to be way off the scale and our kingdom is going to be the greatest but reading those prophecies with christ centered with a christ centered lens of course shows us That Jesus came to be a different kind of king, to give a kind of security that goes beyond what we might have otherwise expected. You will call him Jesus because he will save us from our sins. Acts 4, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Men will trust in chariots and horses, but God's people are to trust in the name of the Lord and to trust that what he says about salvation is true. What does the system of saints in the Roman Catholic Church teach us? What what does the the, the vast complex of things about the the Virgin Mary in the Roman Catholic Church teach us? It teaches us something about the heart of man. Roman Catholic error is similar to the superstition and unbelief that you can see all around you. All around you in the world. People trust in what they see. They find security in what they see. And God says, what I want from my people. Not that you can't find some measure of security, or joy, or happiness in the things that God gives to you. But what God wants from His people is to, above all, put their faith and their trust in Christ alone and to trust that He saves you from your sins. And that salvation goes beyond anything you could have in this world. And thus, you are filled with, as we've been talking about recently, contentment. You are filled with trust in God's providence. Psalm 60, verse 11, Grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. You think about the trials of your life. Richard Sibbs, Puritan, says this. This is why they are called trials, so that a man can know what kind of metal he's made of. When we go through the fire and we're tempted to start trusting in other things, when Israel was faced with the reality of whether it be the Philistines or other nations that were uh, sometimes closing in on them. And you can read up until 1 Samuel 8, what is God doing? God is going out before them. He is fighting their battles. He's ensuring that they remain in the promised land. And yet still, they are saying, we want a king to rule over us. So that brings us then to the challenge of gospel faith. The challenge of of gospel faith. The question is whether we can continue to see the gospel as the best news when our flesh wants something else, when we convince ourselves that the salvation of the Lord is not enough for us. Listen again to what Richard Sibbs says. He says, Because we are so desperately addicted to present things and so prone to put confidence In the arm of flesh. Unless God drives us from these holds By casting us into a perplexed state. We shall never know what it is to live by faith in God alone. When all other props are pulled away. And when the stream of things seems cross unto us. That God may train us to live the spiritual life of the just. Which is by faith in him. When all else fails. He suffers us to fall into the lion's mouth, that so our prayers, which are the flame of faith, may be more ardent and piercing, rather cries than tears. What an astounding, astounding paragraph there. What's he saying? He's saying that, number one, we're addicted to earthly things. He's saying this as a 17th century pastor. Imagine what he would say uh, living in today's world. We are so prone to put confidence in the arm of flesh. So what is God going to do to his people? He's going to chisel away our, uh, the, the, the proneness we have to trust in those things. He's going to work on us. He's going to put us in the fire. He's going to refine us. He's going to melt those things away so that we trust in him alone and so that we live the life of the just. He brings us into a state of perplexion and confusion unto what he is doing. Why? So that we can be reminded that we are to trust in him alone. So that we are to be reminded that we are to take comfort in Christ alone. Because he saves us from our sins. Because at the end of it all, what do you need to be worried about? Whether or not you are reconciled to the God of the universe. And God has shown us so clearly in his word, in Christ you are reconciled to me. And in Christ, I have given you an inheritance that is uh, more imperishable than gold or silver. And it's more valuable than those things. And it's laid up in heaven for you. So live according to that. And then, of course, as he does so, what does he want? What does God want when uh, we are brought into these trials, these times of great suffering, when all the things we're tempted to trust in are ripped away from us? Probably how Israel would have felt in the exile, right? All of the props of their faith in present things was stripped away. And so they had to trust in God. And when we are brought to that same place, what happens? Our prayers, which are called there the flame of faith, what does that mean? It means that our faith grows in size, in heat, when We are brought to our knees to pray to God. Our prayers may be more ardent and piercing. Rather, cries and tears. Because of Christ, brothers and sisters, God saves us to something. He does not save us from something. He doesn't promise no hard times, He actually promises there will be hard times. God does not generally save His people from death. He saves them to his kingdom. This is what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and save me safely into his heavenly kingdom. What a wonderful little verse. I've been finding there's so many little gems in 2 Timothy. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and save me into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. And when you grasp that, when you hold on to that, and when you take your refuge in Christ alone, and you're trusting in Him alone, it becomes just a natural thing, a joy-filled thing to serve the God who has given you this. No matter what the circumstances, in good times and in bad. I'll end tonight by quoting once more Sibs and how he brings us to that same exact realization Uh, to serve this God who has done all these things for you. He says this, Observe how complete God's favors are to his people. He deals like a God that is fully and eternally with, uh, with his children. If he deliver, it is from the greatest evil. If he preserve, it is to the greatest good. Who would not serve such a master? Oh, the baseness of the vile heart of man that is a slave to inferior things and afraid to displease men, never considering what a blessed condition it is to be under the government of a gracious God that will keep us from ill, if it be for our good forever, outwardly from evil works, inwardly from the terrors of an ill conscience, that will preserve us here in the world and give us heaven when we have done. I beseech you, let this complete and full dealing of God quicken us to a holy courage and constancy In his service. Holy courage and constancy. That's what we are to be brought to when we come face to face with the gospel. When we come face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ who saves us from our sins. Who is a perfect and complete savior. And you see the heart of man wanting to put faith in something else. Saints, superstition, things of this world. Put your faith in Christ. And may the the goodness of God, may the wonder of God's grace give you courage in this world. May it give you constancy, steadfastness to continue to joyfully serve him all of your days, no matter the circumstances, because because of what he has given to us in our perfect Savior, Jesus Christ. He was not the king that Israel demanded that day of 1 Samuel 8 but he was a king far better. He was security far better than they ever could have imagined. We thank God that he was pleased to send such a king and to send such a savior for us. May we trust in him always. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for Christ, the one who was slain and yet now stands in victory. Curse of sin has lost its grip on us who trust in him. And so we thank you for that. And we ask, O great God, that you would be pleased to encourage us and keep us in your service each and every day. For your glory, in Christ's name we pray, amen.